Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the volcanic eruption in Tonga and how that's being covered and what that says about aid and the press. So there was a massive volcanic eruption uh, on the island of Tonga. It was the world's largest volcanic eruption in decades. The sonic boom could be heard as far away as Alaska. And it produced this 300 mile wide volcanic mushroom cloud. Uh, amazingly, the death toll was relatively low considering the extent of the blast. And immediately both aid workers and journalists start to, started to figure out how do we get in there to report this story, but also to give aid to the 100,000 people or so who live in Tonga. And it proved to be amazingly difficult. The ash prevented airplanes from landing at the airport. The ash prevented satellite phones from working. And a internet cable, the sole undersea internet cable that connected Tonga to the world snapped during a tsunami and it completely cut the place off. So how do you go about covering that? How do you think about how to frame stories around that? And how, do, how does COVID and climate change and everything else factor in? It turns out it was a fascinating exercise that brought all this stuff to the forefront. I'm really happy to be joined by Damian Cave. He's the New York Times Bureau Chief in Sydney who was charged with covering this when the eruption happened. Damien, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before this happened, had you been to Tonga before? No, I have not been to Tonga um, before or at any point. Yeah. What do you? What did you know about it before this volcano? Uh, you know, I knew a little bit about it because a, a friend of mine from college actually served in the Peace Corps in Tonga and ended up marrying somebody from there. So, you know, I had spent some time with him in New York and. Uh, many years ago and, and spoke to them about the experience a bit. And, um, you know, since being the Australia Bureau Chief includes coverage of the Pacific, I tried to do my best to kind of read up on the region as much as I could. And frankly, in 2020, I had a whole lot of plans to do a lot of coverage out of the Pacific, but then the pandemic nixed all of that. So um, I would say I wasn't starting completely from zero, but I wasn't too far ahead beyond zero. Yeah. So how does this unfold then? So you get a call or you, you get an alert on your phone that this, this eruption had happened. Now it had been, there had been sort of signs, right? That, that the volcano was resting before it actually blew. That's right. A few days before there were some rumblings, um, you know, in December, there was a, you know, a bit of steam coming out, but those weren't the kinds of things that were enough for us to kind of pay a lot of attention and nor was it enough for a lot of the kind of, you know, governments nearby to pay much of attention. So when the when the eruption, the big eruption happened, I remember, you know, seeing a photo on Twitter of this mushroom cloud. But at the time, frankly, I was dealing with another story dealing with Djokovic being deported from Australia. And so, you know, I figured I would wait and see kind of what what happened. In a lot of cases, you know, this is a region where there's a lot of geological activity. So, you know, earthquakes, volcanoes, um, it, it, it pops up fairly often. And so the question is just, well, how severe is this one? So in this case, I kind of waited to see what was going to happen. And was the coverage of this all on you or did you have, did the Times have stringers there or close by who could join you or how did you go about gathering information? 
So, I mean, the Times at this point is a complete 24-hour global newsroom. So the first person to actually pick up uh, the fact that this was a bigger than average event was in London. And so um, when I went to sleep there, you know, I was still kind of waiting. But when I woke up the next morning, someone in London had written a small story kind of exploring uh, the scale of this. And so that that's kind of how it started. You know, I do, we have partnerships actually with a few different publications in the Pacific um, where they syndicate New York Times comments, I mean, New York Times content. And so I did have some contacts and, you know, I tried to reach out to them, but you know, given what we knew right away, which was that the communications cable was down, I wasn't really expecting anything back. And not surprisingly, I didn't get anything back. And so, you know, the place that's closest where there's some contact or some sense of what's going on is Fiji. So that's where the United Nations coordinator is. That's where a lot of the aid groups are. Um, and so that that sort of became at least some window onto what was going on. But even in that case, there was really very, very little information coming out. So where was it? Where was the information coming from? Like, how do you how do you even start to gather this stuff? Well, what's interesting about this story, I think, is that the scientific information came out pretty quickly, and we knew from you know the volcanologists in New Zealand and elsewhere that this was a really really large eruption. They can measure it by you know how high the ash cloud goes, um, by the force uh, of the volcano, and and, and sort of how dispersed the the eruption is the sound wave that you know that came out of this volcano was heard as far away as alaska uh and so we knew right away that this was a really big deal but there was this crazy disconnect because while the science and the technology of communication was so advanced in terms of describing the natural activity the natural act of this eruption the voices of the people on the ground where it was you know affected having the greatest impact were completely silenced you know once that cable had been cut and that happened about an hour a little over an hour after the eruption you know no one knew what was going on um and so you had this like hint of extreme disaster there were like two videos that tongans were like sharing and deconstructing and really going over and again and again and in one there was a tsunami wave that was pushing through a bunch of kind of suburban fences as vans drove away uh and in another one it was just this slow moving wave moving across a road. And so, you know, those that was sort of all we had for a while. And so we knew that there was enough to cause damage, but we weren't sure of how much damage, you know, there weren't a whole lot of voices of people on the ground. Um, so it was an extreme, extremely bizarre kind of event. Although you, you wrote a piece pretty quickly that I thought was pretty interesting, just about how how um, severed the place became really quickly. And I was, and as I was reading that, I was like, well, how in the hell did you find this out if, if, if all these people had been, had been sort of cut off? Yeah, so good question. So what I ended up doing, I mean, one, you had this period of time where there was a little bit of connection. So, you know, the cable, if you look at the traffic on, on the cable, it declined and then just was cut off completely. So what I ended up doing was looking first or looking for, for Tongans living overseas who had made a connection to their family in that hour window. Um, you know, and I happened to find a couple people mainly by just, you know, doing what all reporters do. I just went on social media and looked for anyone who appeared to be Tongan talking about their family or worrying about their family and just messaged them and asked if they'd had any information or anything like that. So in some ways it was a bit of telephone tag um, and just trying to find some people who had something. So that was the first thing. And then after after a few days, um, the mobile phone sort of cellular provider, even though they couldn't fix the cable, had restored a little bit of satellite coverage. So when the clouds would clear, 
you know, a couple people could make phone calls. Basically, they had about 10%, they said, of what was needed or what they had with the cable. So what that meant is that lots of Tongans were basically spending their whole lives pressing redial on their phones, trying to get through to their family members. And eventually, you know, many of them did. Often at like three or four in the morning, they would wake up someone there and get a little bit of information before saying, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I woke you up. I'll call you back later assuming that they would be able to get through again. And then in many cases, they weren't able to get through. And so, you know, you just had these snippets of information that would come through that I was able to get to just by trying to talk to as many Tongans overseas who had desperately tried to get to their relatives. So that's kind of how I had to put the story together. It's so interesting. Like, it didn't even dawn on me that, like, um, the ash cloud would affect the satellite coverage, but I guess it would, yeah, the satellite cellular. Yeah. And, and, you know, and if I mean, I've covering, covered remote places before, like I've, I've had this happen where, you know, if I was on a satellite phone and a cloud came overhead, my call with my editor got cut off. And so it wasn't hugely surprising. And, and a lot of these remote Pacific islands, they actually don't have, you know, fiber optic cable. And so th- this is actually a somewhat common experience in, in remote islands all over the world where the only coverage is through satellites and it's spotty and dependent on the weather and cuts in and out. Um, and that's that's how disconnected many of these places still are from the world. So did you, I mean, a lot of times what happens when disasters like this happen is that reporters come in with aid workers, right? Um, you hitch a ride with the Red Cross people or whoever it is that's coming in. Um, and that's the way some people get into disasters. And in this case, even the aid workers were kept out because they you know, couldn't fly in because of the ash cloud and and then there was this Australian ship, right? Was it an Australian ship that had COVID problems when they were trying to come in? Yeah. I mean, when I talked to the UN officials, you know, who have managed disasters for a very long time, they said this has really been unique for two reasons. One, the cut in communications, and two, COVID keeping people out. And so, you know, I I did try to get in with aid groups. I tried to get in with every imaginable aid group, with every defense department and foreign, you know, trade office in, in the region. And was turned down in every case because Tonga basically isn't allowing anyone in. You know, there's a three-week quarantine um, rule for anyone who comes, which obviously doesn't work if you're trying to get immediate aid in. And the UN basically said, listen, at some point we're going to need to negotiate this. But right now we're doing contactless delivery. And so even if you you get on an aid boat or an aid flight, you're not going to get off. And all you're going to see is what you can see from the window. And, And even that they wouldn't let me do. So, you know, it is a really unique situation, but this is a part of the world that historically, you know, suffered a lot of disease brought in, frankly, by, you know, white outsiders who were trying to do good or in some cases just trying to sell them things. And so the, the memory of past pandemics and, and past problems with illness and disease brought in from outside is still pretty fresh. And so, you know, both politically and from a health perspective, it's super, super sensitive. That's so interesting. So is that are, is that still where they are in terms of, are they still demanding sort of contactless aid? They are. Yes, that's still what's going on. I checked in with the UN yesterday and they're, nothing has changed. You know, they're bringing in more flights and more ships, but everything is basically dropped off and then picked up later by someone in Tonga. Uh, and so, you know, and then if there are, are, as there have been, cases where there are positive COVID cases on board, then those ships get turned around. So, it's created a lot of delays, I think, in getting aid and assistance to Tonga. And have you sort of 
put on the sidelines your own efforts to get there? I mean, is it sort of, there's nothing really you can do at this point? There isn't really anything I can do. I mean, my editors keep asking me if I can get in and I keep saying I'm trying and the answer continues to be no. So yeah, nothing has changed, nor has it changed for any of these aid workers. I mean, the UN and the Red Cross are lucky in that they had local volunteers on the ground and that's who they're working through basically. So you've got a few dozen people uh, who are connected to the effort, um, who are employees or volunteers. And, and that's kind of it. And I don't know when or if that's going to change. I mean, the internet cable is not supposed to be up and running for another three or four weeks. Uh, I can imagine that aid, you know, will also take at least that long um, in terms of allowing people in. I mean, one question is, if and when COVID does get in, does that change the dynamic? If you have 10 or 20 or 100 cases, does that mean, okay, well, now that it's already here, maybe we can just test people and accept that we'll allow them in. But for now, it's a very strict zero COVID policy, and the people in Tonga seem to be happy with that. Is it, is, um, there's zero COVID cases right now? That's right. There's zero COVID cases, and there was zero COVID cases when the volcano erupted. There, there was one case in October um, that, was, that was marked or documented, and then that's, I think, the only case that they've had through the whole pandemic. How big of a, um, I mean, in this country, you know, there was a lot of interest in this when it first happened. And then the Times ran this like crazy story of this guy who had sort of been stranded on a boat. Um, no, I think one of your colleagues wrote this um, after the tsunami hit and that that created interest. But I think it sort of died down, to be to be honest. What about there, like in Australia? Is this something that people are still really tuned into? I mean, you have had other issues going on there, like Djokovic and other things. But um, is this something that's like on the news every day? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that there was this moment for the world, uh, including Australia, where we didn't know what was going on. And like I said, we, we knew that it was bad and we didn't know how bad it was. And I think that sort of mystery and that odd experience of living in a digitized, always connected, always informed world, somehow being cut off from the reality on the ground, it was quite jarring. And I think that drove a lot of interest. And once we kind of figured out, oh, okay, it was bad, but you know what? There were probably only a handful of deaths and, you know, yes, some damaged property, but maybe it's not quite as catastrophic as some of the worst tsunamis we've seen in Asia in the past decade. Then, okay, maybe we can move on. And so I do think a lot of people have moved on. Um, you know, the broader questions that some people are trying to keep interest in is, well, remember, these are, this is a part of the world that's more vulnerable because of climate change. So when a bad thing like this happens, it's worse. And, you know, to what extent does the rest of the world you know, owe this part of the world a little bit more help, either in aid and assistance or in internet connections or anything else. And so those topics are still around. But I do think that, you know, some of the interest has faded um, as, it, as it often does with any disaster. Yeah, and this is to me the crux of why I find this so fascinating. Like, um, you know, there's also the right to like not want to tell your story. Like, I don't, I don't want the New York Times. I, I mean, whatever. It's, I don't really care. Um, or, or even, I don't know what the attitude is there towards West, you know, aid. Um, but maybe it's the same thing. I mean, I just find like our assumptions about what people want and need both from press and from aid may be wrong. Right. Yeah. I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think, you know, I have been able to actually reach people in Tonga since I started the reporting and, you know, they're busy cleaning up. Um, you know, there's a reporter there who works for a local independent news outlet, Matangi Tonga, 
And, you know, I was like, hey, can you maybe just do some reporting for me? And she was like, honestly, I'm just trying to, you know, do what I need to do here. And basically was like, yeah, I don't really think I, you know, need to make sure that the world knows exactly what's going on here. Like, I, I need my people to to understand and to move forward. And yes, aid will come in, but that's not the only thing that matters. And so I, I agree with you. I mean, I think What's interesting is, he, and even for these Tongans overseas, they would reach their family members and their family members would be like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's just a lot of ash. Go go back to your job and making money over there, wherever you are. Um, and so there's there's sort of, a, in some ways, a, a sense of both resilience and a comfort with the disconnection that I think is more jarring for those of us who are news consumers. And in some ways, it just feels like a different approach to disaster and to life. And you have to remember, this is a place that deals with a lot of cyclones, that deals with, you know, earthquakes and volcanoes nearby. And so it, it is a, it's a slightly different experience. So, um, but I agree. I think it's a totally fascinating example of, you know, a place that doesn't necessarily share the same sense of immediacy or values of being overly informed um, and nor is necessarily as connected to their phones as the rest of the world. Yeah, and they don't maybe they don't feel compelled to join in this dance, which can be sort of transactional. It's like, okay, we're gonna, you know, the press is gonna come in, they're gonna expect us to tell our story in a certain way, and then they're gonna package it in a certain way and send it back out into the world, which which may or may not reflect the way it feels to us. Um, it is super interesting. And and you're at it your your point about like um, they just have a different point of view, partly towards risk. It reminds me of a book that you wrote. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, uh, well, since I paused on that, by the way, I thought that was amazing. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, Damien wrote a book about his move to Australia and surfing and how he just thinks about how it forced him to reframe uh, how he thinks about risk, especially as it relates to his family, uh, and just adapting to a different way of looking at the world. Um, I thought it was an amazing thing. But did, 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 tell me about how that frame sort of factors into your thinking about how to cover something like this. Well, I, I think one thing that I learned in, in doing this book, which is called Into the Rip, and so it's kind of about diving into risk to some degree, is just how bad humans are at assessing risk and how malleable it is. I mean, I think when I started this book as someone who had covered war and and, and done things that were risky, I kind of thought that being a risk taker was you know, just part of my personality. And what I learned over time is that that for people and societies, it's actually about how we're taught and what we pay attention to and the people we surround ourselves with. And if you're in a culture that's constantly anxious and risk averse, then you're more likely to be risk averse. If you're in a culture where it's common to, you know, volunteer to be a lifesaver and to throw 12 year olds into the ocean and make them learn how to deal with giant waves as they are here in Australia, then you develop a different sense of risk. And so I think that was one of the big takeaways. And, and frankly, I do think about it quite a bit because there, it's, it's not just something like the pandemic. You know, as I was saying, even with the volcano and eruptions, you see it once you start to look at the world through a lens of risk, you start to see all the distortions and the different ways to deal with it. And it's not that one way is better or worse, but I think you start to think about it on a slightly deeper level and realize that a lot of times our responses to risk are emotion driven or based on the sources or influences around us, when in fact, we can do a better job by trying to redirect those. And in some cases, by, you know, embracing risk, if we don't have enough of it in our life, 
and, you know, respecting it and being careful and not reckless if we have too much of it in our lives. I mean, ultimately, risk is a lesson in finding the middle path and trying to stay rational despite all the emotional swirl around us. And, you know, Australia, for me, helped me figure that out, both as an individual and as a parent. So as this whole experience with this volcano, um, I mean, do you think that the next time you get a call in the middle of the night that something like this has happened somewhere in the world that you are responsible for, are you going to approach it differently, Uh, both logistically and in the sort of way that you approach the story? Well, I think that my experience of having done this now, you know, a bunch of times, my first urge is always to go. <laughs> and uh, and then my second urge or second thought is always to to kind of check my own assumptions and the assumptions of my readers to sometimes, you know, make clear that just because the way that our readers might perceive an event or risk or response to an event one way, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the right way. And, you know, I remember when I covered the war in Iraq and I came back and and Bill Keller, who was the executive editor at the time said, you know, as long as you're telling people that it's more complicated than they think, then you're doing your job. And so for all these events, I sometimes still feel that that urge to say, okay, well, what do you assume? And how might that not necessarily be uh, as simple as you think? And what is the context and the experience of people on the ground that might complicate your very distant perspective. If there's one advantage to being there, it's that you're closer to to, the, to that experience of those who are directly affected. And so I don't know that my experience is changed. I think it's sort of evolved and probably been refined over time so that, you know, I'm a little bit sharper when I go in, in terms of what I'm looking for and the kinds of stories that I think will resonate. Because I think at the end of the day, at least New York Times readers, they want to be challenged. They want to learn about a world that's different from their own. And they want to see themselves in perspective, at least sometimes. So hopefully that's what a journalist who, you know, parachutes into these places can help do. Yeah, it reminds me, um, one of our editors here, one of his favorite lines is like, journalists are just terrible about saying that they don't know. But sometimes that's the story. Like, I don't know. I don't know if this happened. I don't know what it means or I don't know where it's going. But it's hard, yeah. for, it's hard for news outlets to do. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we're we're always pushed to assert and um, and and yet, I think the best journalism in many ways comes from humility and curiosity. And so, you know, going into these places and not assuming you have it all figured out or you know what the story is before you get there is super important. Uh, it allows for surprise, it allows for serendipity, and it allows for better stories. So, you know, I do think it's really important to kind of resist that urge to know everything and to assume that you or your editors or your readers know everything. Damien, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So you can read CGR's coverage of what's going on everywhere else in the world outside of Tonga and maybe even some in Tonga um, at CGR.org through our daily email newsletter, The Media Today, and on social media. Thanks for listening. See you next week.